This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Let's bow our heads with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the freedom that we enjoy to come together and worship today on this, your Holy Sabbath day. Lord, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to be with us. Lord, please anoint my lips so that I may speak the words that you would have me to speak. And Lord, please let us all be blessed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've heard a lot of things in this presentation. Um, as far as my presentations go, we, we started off talking about pagan Rome and seeing how papal Rome is really modeled on pagan Rome. And when you look at the religion of papal Rome and what they were trying to do, it was a very public religion. And it was one, the, the rationale behind it was if all of the gods are being worshipped properly, then the empire will prosper. And so they enforced worship there. Uh, worship of all the different gods. And then into that came Christianity. And Christianity posed a problem because Christianity called for exclusive worship of one God. And the Christians wouldn't worship all the gods, and they wouldn't worship the emperor. They wouldn't burn incense to the idols. And so persecution started. And then Constantine, at least nominally, uh, converted to Christianity, and we got a whole different kind of persecution going on. And if you'll recall, we read some of the early Christian fathers. Um, they understood religious liberty as well as we did. And the Donatists, they understood religious liberty very similar to the way we do. And this persisted for quite some time into the time of Martin Luther. And during the time of Martin Luther, we saw that there were actually state churches created during the Reformation, but we also learned about the Radical Reformation. And in the Radical Reformation, you had the Anabaptists, and their big sin was is believer's baptism, where you would only be baptized if you believed. And so therefore, they were creating another church that wasn't national in character. It was because you actually believed. And that was a very radical thing, and that got a lot of them burned at the stake. And then as we were looking through history, we saw how these thoughts coalesced and came to America. And then Roger Williams came in Rhode Island, and it was a new day for freedom. And listening to Roger Williams, he says the same things that we say today, especially as Seventh-day Adventists, about religious liberty. And so that brings us to now. Um, we, we talked about the, the U.S. Constitution and a few other things. We don't have time, obviously, to review everything. And so I'd like to bring us to today. I'd like to start, though, by reading a quote. I think that this is 100% um, true. It says this. This is uh, Lord Acton. He was a historian and a politician in England, and he had to say this. Liberty is the delicate fruit of a mature civilization. Liberty is delicate. We need to remember that. At all times, sincere friends of freedom have been rare, and its triumphs have been due to minorities. And really, that's where you need liberty is for the minorities. And the corollary of that is that it's destroyed by majorities. And we need to keep that in mind. Turn with me, Will, in your Bibles, if, if, if you will, to Revelation 13. 
We've already looked at some of this. I believe that this is America in prophecy. In Revelation 13, looking in verse 11, it says, And I beheld another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. So we see this. Uh, it's another study to show that this is American prophecy. So um, hopefully this is not a question to you. But we see that America is going to speak as a dragon, and he exercised this all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. So we see that the issue is worship. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles, which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, how do you make an image to the beast? An image is something that, that duplicates the original, right? So they're going to make a duplication of something to the beast, which had the wound by the sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. Now, when you think about that, this is not just some simple image. This is something that, that moves and talks. It's, oh, it, it's scary. There's a real power here. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause <clears throat> that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So there's definitely a loss of religious liberty here. And he causeth all, both, great, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or on their foreheads. On the hand, the action, the foreheads, the heart, you can go either way. They don't, they don't care. And that no man might buy or sell, save he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Great Controversy has this to stay. The prediction that it will speak as a dragon and exercise all the power of the first beast plainly foretells a development of, of a spirit of intolerance and persecution. And the statement that the beast with two horns causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast indicates that the authority of this nation is to be exercised in enforcing some observance which shall be an act of homage to the papacy. Such action would be directly contrary to the principles of this government, to the genius of its free institutions, to the direct and solemn avowals of the Declaration of Independence and to the Constitution. The founders of the nation wisely sought to guard against the employment of secular power on the part of the church with its inevitable result in tolerance and persecution. There's a professor from St. Louis University, uh, James Fisher, he said this, commenting upon Catholicism in America. It's kind of interesting what he had to say. Um, he's a Catholic, so it, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting the way he puts it, but I, I do agree with what he said. The situation of Roman Catholicism within the American culture has always been a puzzling issue to scholars and citizens. I'm not sure it's that puzzling, but it is a special situation. Many Protestants in early America were sure Catholicism was antithetical both to genuine Christianity and democracy, a sentiment manifest in much of the rhetoric inspiring both the American Revolution and the Union cause during the Civil War. In the 1850s, a Republican orator and a nativist proclaimed, America, American civilization in its ideal is historically the political aspect of the Reformation. And it's true, if you were listening to our, our, our earlier talks, you see how the American government and the genius of its liberty is really based on the, the fight for religious liberty and the Reformation. Now, 
before we think, oh, it's just some kind of uh, conspiracy mongering about what was going on with the union and not being pro-Catholic. One thing that we should remember about the history of the Civil War is that the Catholic nation, the Vatican, was the only nation on earth to recognize the South. So, the U.S. Constitution guarantees liberty of conscience. When this was going on during the Civil War, a number of things came out of the Vatican that I think are really interesting. And if you go back and can find the encyclicals and the bulls and these kinds of things that came out of the Vatican in the 1850s and the 1860s, some very interesting things were being said. Um, Pope Pius X in his encyclical letter of August 15, 1854 said, the absurd and erroneous doctrines or ravings in defense of liberty of conscience are most pest pestilential error, a pest of all others, most to be dreaded in a state. Oh, he hated liberty of conscience. And remember where liberty of conscience came from. It was from this believer's baptism, which was divorcing people from a state church. In December 8, 1864, he also went on to say that those who assert liberty of conscience and of religious worship, also all such that maintain that the church may not employ force, should be anathematized. So didn't want liberty of conscience and wanted the church to be able to employ force. So this is kind of old, and I said I was going to be talking more about today. So let's move this forward into 1960. I want to analyze a speech that John F. Kennedy made just before his election. Um, he was the first Catholic president, and there was a lot of tension. People still remembered the Catholic issue at the time that JFK was running for president. And so he, he gave a speech, and I don't know whether he believed it or not, but it's actually a beautiful speech. And let's analyze it for a second. He said this, I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute. Amen. Where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote. Where no church or school or church school is granted any public funds or political preference. And where no man is denied public office merely because of his, his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or of the people who who might elect him. Well, what's happened since 1960? Think about what he was saying there, right? In 1996, Bill Clinton has, uh, provides monies to faith-based uh, uh, groups that are providing government services. In 2002, uh, President Bush creates the Faith-Based Community Initiative Funding, and he creates a, uh, a whole office inside the government. It wasn't cabinet level, but it's a high-level office to do these things. And today... We spend money, the federal government provides money to faith-based organizations so that they can provide government services on behalf of the government. If you look back at history in Virginia, it was this very issue that came up that caused the Virginia legislature to provide religious freedom for Virginia, and they said no. Going on with JFK's speech, he says, I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope. Think about that. We just had the Pope here in America. 
He goes on, the national, not from the Pope or the National Council of Churches or any other ecclesiastical source where no religious body seeks to impose its will directly or indirectly upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials and where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. If you look today, every major faith tradition, every major faith has a political action uh, a pack, a political action committee. They're all out funding, they're all out fundraising for candidates and they're pushing agendas and they're very, very active in the political realm. We are not here with what Kennedy wanted. He goes on, for while this year it may be a Catholic against whom the finger of suspicion is pointed, in other years it has been and may someday be again a Jew or a Quaker or a Unitarian or a Baptist. It was Virginia's harassment of Baptist preachers, for example, that helped lead to Jefferson's statute of religious freedom. He knows his history, amen? And in fact, this was the kind of America for which our forefathers died. When they fled here to escape religious tests oaths that denied office to members of less favored churches, when they fought for the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom. He goes on, I ask you tonight to follow in that tradition, to judge me on the basis of my record of 14 years in Congress, on which my declared stand against an ambassador to the Vatican, against unconstitutional aid to parochial schools, and he goes on. Amen. So in 1984, President Reagan appoints an ambassador to the Vatican. And we have a long history of helping parochial schools, whether it be buying textbooks or there's been examples of even hiring uh, teachers to teach non-religious subjects in parochial schools. And as far as the papal visits go, um, well, by 1965, the Pope came for the first time. Five years after this speech, the Pope came to America for the first time. Eight times he's met with U.S. presidents in the White House. One time he met with the U.S. president in Alaska. He had a stopover and Reagan went up to visit him. Four times he's been to the U.N. and one time he's been to Congress. The presidents have visited him in the Vatican 22 times. Um, I have some long statements here, but I'll just read a little, just little pieces here. Um, this is from a, a news service um, uh, published in April 18, 2005. It says, a seismic shift has occurred in the way American evangelical and fundamental pro pro Protestants have understood the religion of Rome. It's not, I mean, this seismic shift is in the politics. It's in the way the nation is governed. Billy Graham, quoted in Time Magazine, December 9, 1991, said this, no other man in the world today could attract as much attention on moral and spiritual subjects as John Paul II. The country is responding in a magnificent way. The Pope has reached millions of Protestants. This is a big shift. And you have to remember, our country and our liberties were based on it. It's an outworking of the Protestant Reformation that gives us all of our liberties. President uh, George W. Bush, this is uh, uh, George Bush I, said this, The best way to honor Pope John Paul II, truly one of the great men, is to, one, take, take his teaching seriously, is to, two, listen to his words, and to, three, 
put his words into action here in America. This is the challenge we accept. So you look at this, the Pope came to America. You know, we could talk about all the little different details, and I'm, I'm just, we just don't have time today. But I would like to talk a little bit about his speech to Congress. Um, when he came to Congress, he, he talked about, about four um, Americans that are remarkable, that we know well in history. And I'm just going to talk about a few of them right here. Um, because I think that they're really relevant to, to the whole discussion. And the one that, that, that I find, well, the two of these are very interesting. Um, first is he spent a lot of time talking about Lincoln. Well, think about Lincoln. What did we just hear about the Civil War? The Pope supported the South in the Civil War. The Pope issued a bunch of negative um, statements about the North. And I wish I had a few of them here. I, I went to try to find them at the last minute. I've seen them many times on the internet, and they're hard to find right now. Ah, someone's mentioning 50 Years in the Church of Rome. A very interesting book uh, by Father Chinique, and I would suggest everyone to read it. Very, very controversial, um, especially this statement. Uh, Chinique says that Lincoln made a statement actually blaming the, uh, the, the Catholic Church for the Civil War in that book. So another thing, though, that's, that's, that's more publicly and well-known is, is the assassination of Lincoln. Uh, there was investigations, obviously, into the assassination. And I know my parents probably um, showed me pictures related to Lincoln at too young of an age, because I will tell you I have burned into my head those um, conspirators hanging from the gallows. Well, I've gone on and I've read more about that. And you know, they're all Catholic. And there was all Catholic involvement in that. And there were some Civil War generals who looked into what was going on, and they accused the Vatican of harboring some of the conspirators in the Vatican after, after the assassination had occurred. So I find it very interesting that the Pope could come and come to Congress and talk about Lincoln and not elicit any response. The other person he talked about, though, that I think is particularly interesting is Thomas Merton. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Thomas Merton, but Thomas Merton was a Trappist. I believe he was a Trappist monk. I know that he was a monk and um, very much into mysticism, very mystical. And Merton has gone on to become someone who is uh, very popular in both the Catholic Church and in... Um, other denominations in the ecumenical movement. And the aspect of his popularity is mysticism. He spent a lot of time with Buddhist monks in the East, um, meditating with them, learning their practices, and bringing them into the West. Well, I want to read something that I think you'll find kind of interesting if you think about this. Um, this is from a book that was written in the 1920s um, and early 20s. It's written by an Adventist, I believe. He was talking about religious freedom. And this is what he talks about Catholicism. Where Catholicism doesn't have the upper hand, where, where it, doesn't, it isn't the, the main line, main majority church, um, it engages in different strategies to change that. And one of the things he said is they engage in mysticism. 
And this is why. He says, mysticism contributes by diverting attention from dogma to experience and equating the way to God with the way of suffering, which comports more readily with martyrdom and with persecution. <clears throat> he goes on to say, talking about sectarianism that comes in. He says, sectarianism is also used, and he says this, as in the case of the spiritual Franciscans, the sectarianism places obedience to God or to the founder of the order or to the Holy Spirit above obedience to the Pope. Now, this guy wrote long before any of this happened. I mean, this is about 100 years ago, right? And he sees that mysticism, when you can denigrate, downgrade doctrine, now you don't have anything to argue about. You can just experience together. And then he talks about the Franciscans and the idea that if you have this sectarianism that you have with inside Catholicism, that you can kind of promote some of these some of these groups, and they appear to be kind of like the suffering saints. I mean, St. Francis of Assisi definitely has that kind of feeling. And when you look at this, I mean, this was prophetic what this guy wrote. What is the Pope's name? Pope Francis. Where did he get it from? The Franciscans. And so you have this, this Pope that's very, very popular, um, and, and he, it, it's just using this. We see this here today. And this is in a book on religious liberty. So how does religious liberty work, and, and what's a, an efficient way to think about it? I, I thought about, you know, I could take you through a bunch of case law, and I think your eyes are just kind of glass over, and you're like, man, I don't want to hear this. And I would, I would apologize for some of you that may want to hear it. But there's been a lot of thought about this, and there's two main lines of reasoning within the U.S. Supreme Court decisions and all the court decisions. There's two main directions that have gone throughout um, their decisions on religious liberty in this country. And the two decisions go one way, where they follow strictly Roger Williams and his separation of church and state. And that's also, I, I constantly say Roger Williams, but the reason why it really got into the Constitution and why we have it here and probably more talked about is Thomas Jefferson, because Thomas Jefferson got it from Roger Williams. But it's this wall of separation between church and state. And the other way is what they call accommodation, which basically means we're not going to pass any law that, um, that, that damages or restricts religion. But you're going to see here that you know, religions compete with each other a little bit, and this method may not be the very best. But Let's talk a little bit about um, separationists first. Um, the real high point for separationists, the, the real high point decision was probably Everson versus Board of Education from 1947. And now you'll have to forgive me because I'm going to talk about a few cases here. And basically, this is what they had to say when they made their decision. They said, um, they're talking about the establishment of religion clause of the First Amendment. And they, they talk about, you know, you can't have a church, you can't establish a state church, but then they go on and say these things. Neither can force nor influence a person. The government can neither force nor influence a person to go to or remain away from a church against his will or force him to profess a belief or disbelief in any religion. That's awesome, right? No person can be punished for entertaining or professing religious beliefs or disbeliefs for church attendance or non-attendance. No tax in any amount, large or small, can be lived can be levied to support any religious activities or institutions, whatever they may be called or whatever form they may adopt to teach or practice religion. 
Neither a state nor the federal government can openly or secretly participate in the affairs of any religious organizations or groups, and vice versa. In the words of Jefferson, the clause against establishment of religion by law was intended to erect a wall of separation between church and state. So he's saying no tax, doesn't matter how big or small, can support a religious activity or institution. And yet what we have in America today is we have these faith-based initiatives where where we give money to the faith-based organizations so that they can provide the government assistance. So we've moved away from the separationists. Now, there's one thing that I think bears, bears talking about because I think you need to be efficient to answer this question if anybody ever asks you. What about the chaplains in, in, in the military? What about chaplains in the other different government organizations? Well, this is what they said about this in 1963. It says this, it's good rationale. Since the government has deprived such person of the opportunity to practice their faith at places of their choice, I mean, you're in the military now, right? You can't just go to any church you want to. Government may, in order to avoid infringing on the free exercise guaranteed, provide substitutes where it requires such persons to be. So that's your exception. Because we know otherwise you would go into the military or some other organization like that and you would have no religion. And so under those circumstances, you can um, provide for for chaplaincies. So, (laughs) I hope you'll like this. Adventists go to court. I know you'd want to hear this, right? There is a very important case, one of the more important religious liberty cases was, was uh, brought by a Seventh-day Adventist, a, a Ms. Sherbert. Um, Sherbert was forced to work on Saturday. And when she went to her boss, she couldn't get an accommodation. The boss said, if you won't work on Saturday, you'll have to quit or be fired. And so she allowed herself to be fired, and she applied for unemployment. Well, the, case, the, the state said, you know what? You are ready, willing, and able, you're ready and able, not just not willing, to work. And so therefore, you don't qualify for unemployment. And so she was denied that benefit. Well, that went up to the United States Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court said that we shouldn't deny her her benefits based upon her exercise of her religious rights. And they found against the state and um, gave her her rights um, and her, her, uh, her unemployment. And they said that unless a state has a compelling interest, we have to to give the benefit to a person. Well, I was reading, um, there's there's an organization, I can't even remember the name of it right now, um, but um, it was just a really interesting interview by a guy, um, not an Adventist. I'll get to it in just a second. not an Adventist, and he says, he says what's, the, what's the, the, uh, the, the most interesting or most important uh, recent religious liberty case? And he says, well, let me tell you what the worst one is. And he said, the worst one is Employment Division of Oregon versus Smith. And let me just read what he had to say, and I'll answer your compelling interest, right? He said this, Smith is so important because it is so terrible, he says, in Sherbert versus Werner, that's the case we were just talking about, the Adventists, the court had formulated the compelling state interest test for interpreting free exercise cases. Now, you ask, what's a, what's a compelling state interest? And I'll try to give you some examples. Um, boy, I'm thinking of them in, in, in religious liberty context, which I guess is okay. I, I wish I could 
get it away from that. But the one that comes to mind right now is one that was, um, uh, was a, a case against the, the Mormon church. And basically they said, we have a compelling state interest to not allow polygamy. It's actually kind of interesting considering the LGBT cases and the, and the gay marriage cases that we've had here recently. But basically they said the state has a compelling interest to see to it that the home is, um, there's a hearth and home kind of uh, philosophy. And this actually goes back in, um, in, in political science all the way back to the Greeks. I mean, every single um, nation on earth has, has, has been interested in this. If you don't have a strong hearth and home, you won't have a strong populace, and you won't be able to field a strong military then. And it's hard to field a military that doesn't have a home worth fighting for. It's that practical. Um, so, but there can be other compelling interests. Um, uh, you just, everything is kind of on a, on, a, on a sliding scale, and the more important the interest the state finds it, the more likely there's gonna say it's compelling. If it seems trivial, it's not compelling. So anyway, he's talking about this, and he's talking about Smith and saying just how terrible it is. Oh, here we go. He's even going to say a little bit more about it. That meant the compelling state interest that before the state could interfere with religious activity, it had to show a compelling interest in public welfare and safety. The state had a high bar to hurdle before it could declare any religious activity illegal and prohibit that activity. Smith declared declared the compelling interest test, uh, excuse me, Smith discarded the compelling state interest test and replaced it with this test, a neutral law of general applicability. Now the state had to hurdle a much lower barrier before it could prohibit religious behavior. That decision enormously advanced the power of the state in church-state relations and is still the law of the land. Smith was a case where there were some Indians that were smoking peyote and they said, you can't do that. And they said, look, the law against peyote is neutral. It doesn't say Indians can't smoke peyotes. It says no one can smoke peyote. So, so because it was just neutral across the board that no one gets to smoke peyote, it's okay. It doesn't single out a religion. And that became the new test. They didn't look to the effect of the legislation. Um, another thing that's interesting, this came up just yesterday. I got to make a telephone call based upon this line of cases. And this line of cases, the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses go out and they solicit. Uh, solicit's the wrong term. That's a technical term. I shouldn't say solicit. But they proselytize, which is precisely what we were doing yesterday in outreach. And it's precisely why I had to call the captain of the police department in Indiana and explain to him that we would continue to do this and that it was okay. And I'm sure his statute was actually, his ordinance was actually written in a constitutional manner and that there wouldn't be a problem. And then I had the same conversation with a, uh, with a, a sergeant here in Louisville. And, um, but he came around very quickly and said that the officers were just uh, asking what people were up to because they'd had some burglaries in the, in the neighborhood. But praise the Lord for the Jehovah's Witnesses for going, for going, um, for, for going ahead of us. So let me tell you the rationale now. So we talked about separation and the high wall of separation. The idea that there's supposed to be nothing, nothing crossing between the church and the state and the legislation and the rules. You know, separation, separation of church and state. Now, what does accommodation look like? Well, this is what someone who believes in religious accommodation theory would believe in. They would believe this. They would think religious liberty means the founders only intended to remove religious requirements for office, 
to prevent the creation of a natural, national church and to protect your freedom of conscience, but that the government is free to fund religion so long as it doesn't favor one over another. Or the government is free to pass laws accommodating or supporting religion so long as it doesn't favor one religion over another. But they're completely forgetting, um, forgetting the foundation of religious liberty in this country and what they're actually fighting for. They didn't want to fund religion in any form whatsoever. That's what the whole debate in Virginia was all about. And the other thing that they're forgetting, too, is that, remember we talked a little about Massachusetts in 1833? They were the last to get rid of their church. And the whole issue was fighting over money and who's going to get the, the parish church. Remember, they had those parish meeting houses in each township, and they, they went to each denomination, and they were arguing about which denomination should get it and who should pay what tax and all this other kind of stuff. Okay, they weren't arguing over religion or any of this stuff. This was just mundane political infighting. Very neutral, very neutral from, their, from today's standard of, of neutrality, right? But the Massachusetts voters voted down that, that, that impartial funding scheme. They called it an impartial funding scheme. They voted it down 90%. That's huge. If any of you have watched elections, have you ever seen anything pass by 90%? It doesn't happen. So the current Supreme Court is highly accommodationist. That's the direction they're going. We just saw that in the Smith case. Um, we should talk a little bit about the Supreme Court. It's very interesting when you look at the Supreme Court. Um, out, of the, uh, out of all the justices, there's, they're, they're, they're all Catholic except for three. We have three Jewish. Um, I wonder if I, I think I made a mistake here. There was a little blurb. No, here we go. Hold on just for a second. I want you to, to get a, a feel for this. Oh, you hate the internet when you... Of the 112 justices who have been appointed to the court, 91 have been from various Protestant denominations. 12 have been Catholics. Eight have been Jewish, and one had no known religious affiliation. So out of the nine, we've got six Catholic today and three Jewish. And when you look, that's half of the total that if we've ever had a Catholic, we've had that today. It's no wonder that they're accommodationist in their thinking. I want to read a couple things from a couple Supreme Court justices. William Rehnquist, the former uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, had said this. And, and Rehnquist was really well respected. I know at least when I went to law school he was. He says this, that the wall of separation between church and state is based upon bad history. It should be frankly and explicitly abandoned. That's an interview in Time Magazine, December 9, 1991. Um, Antonin Scalia. I used to love reading Scalia's opinions when I was in law school. He writes the pithiest, most logical, just tight 
opinions. I really liked reading them, but listen to what he said. He stated that in the future, rulings of the United States Supreme Court will be decided on the basis of majority benefit and traditional values instead of individual rights of conscience. Wait a second. Religious liberty, that's created. What did we read? What did Lord Acton say? It's based on the freedom-loving minorities. And it's the majority that takes it away. In America, there's a phenomenon that's happening, too, that you can see in the courts. It hasn't made much progress in the courts, but there's opinion, some dicta and things being said right now that open up the door for this. And what you see is a movement towards something called a civil religion. And in America, what, what they're talking about today is they're talking about kind of a judicial deism. Basically, the idea is, is you can have a religion that everybody can agree on. Can we just have a religion that everybody can agree on? And the elements of this is a belief in God, a belief in the afterlife, that virtue is better than vice. You can have a prayer to go with it. You have songs, um, statements of allegiance. And if you look at it, it's kind of theoretically possible in the courts. And this is the kind of thing that gets said. When we hear these cases about prayer in schools and prayer in public places, this is a movement right here to establish this civil religion. But there can be no true civil religion. But, but think about Rome. What was Rome trying to do? They wanted to have a public religion, one where you worship the deity of the state, perhaps the emperor, Right? And the reason why you did that was because you wanted the empire to flourish and to make the gods happy. Is this not precisely the same arguments we hear for an establishment of a civil religion here in America today? It's the same thing. We're making an image to Rome. You know, there's a few big things that we have today uh, I'll talk about a couple of them. The, probably the, one of the things that really bothers me and concerns me the most is the LGBT issue, the gay marriage issue, and what's going on with that. Um, as I said before, the political scientists, all the way back to Plato, understood the importance of the home and of, of uh, marriage and raising children. And they believed strongly that uh, the state had an interest in that. Now, the reason why they thought it had an interest in it may not be one that you and I really like because it really uh, went to this military talk and they needed to have a strong military and a strong society based on that. But nobody has ever contested that the state could be involved in that. And truly, the state is deeply involved in it. We have divorce laws, um, all the family laws, all of these relate to, to the, they're all a, a cluster of issues. When you think about that in terms of Roger Williams and what he had to say, he said that the state could never legislate in the first four commandments, but that the state must legislate for the last six. And if you look at every single society, it's always legislated in the last six. How do we know that murder is wrong? 
It's in the last six, and every state can discover that, and every state can outlaw murder. And do we have any problem with that? None whatsoever. And yet today we come along, and we're being told the seventh commandment should be pulled out, pulled out of that second half that we can legislate in. And we're not able to legislate in that area because that's fundamentally where um, issues of marriage come from, is in the seventh commandment. And we're being told that this is a, a religious thing. Now, to add to that, um, what do you do if you're a church organization and you need, you need to hire and fire people, right? What do you do with um, a gay employee? Let's say that that's one of your standards, that you do not want to have a gay employee? It's a rhetorical question. I'll answer. <laughs> the term gay gives legitimacy to the action. I, please forgive me, I'm not trying to give any legitimacy to the action. I know this is a charged, difficult subject, but let me tell you what's going on and what we need to think about from a religious standpoint. Under the, under the law, um, there's been religious exceptions for religious organizations. So if I run a church, I can say I'm only going to hire Adventists. And that's considered a religious, um, a, a, a religious designation. But then in the realm of race, I can't run a church and say I'll only hire a white that's because I'm violating a non-religious civil right. Now, what's going on is, is homosexuality a civil right, a non-religious civil right, or is it a sin? Is it a religious, um, is, it, is it based on a religious belief? And we are right now at a time when the state is trying to make that determination. And when they were up in front of the U.S. Supreme Court arguing gay marriage, one of the justices asked, does that mean that if a church won't perform a wedding, will they lose their tax-exempt status? Well, you know what? They very well might, because any time you violate a civil right, the IRS is to remove your tax-exempt status. And so this is going to be the next place that we fight on this particular issue. And it's just happened in a state court right now. There was a school that said we will not hire a gay teacher and they were ordered to hire them. And so now they're going to be stuck with this kind of choice. Well, I don't want to spend too much time right here because um, I want to keep, there's so much to talk about and we're so much out of time. Um, so, how to think about this. Um, man. The Catholic Church is difficult to think about and it's difficult to talk about. You have speeches like JFK, but then you have this incredible history of persecution. 
And I want to tell you what their official dogma is. You can look this up. It's a little hard to find, but you can find it. This is the official dogma. Um, but rather than read it because it's long and hard to find, I mean, it, it, is, it is, I'm going to read it from a, from a book that summarizes. It says, in Catholicism, I'll only summarize some of this for you first. In Catholicism, there is no belief in toleration and freedom of conscience. We've seen that. So, so what do you do with statements like Kennedy made or ones that are made perhaps by American bishops that sound just like Kennedy? Well, they have an official dogma. And when a bishop says something just like Kennedy said, they're following Catholic dogma, and it's called expediency. It says the only ground for tolerance is expediency, but this is a larger ground than one would uh, first guess. For expediency may be ecclesiastical, political, or religious. The church can argue from the ecclesiastical point of view that persecution will recoil upon Catholics and do the church more harm than good. This is the situation in the United States. If any church had been established, it wouldn't have been a Catholic church. <clears throat> the Catholic church, and if there, the Catholic church would have been persecuted and it probably wouldn't have been exempted. So leading American Catholics have clearly recognized this situation and in the past have wholeheartedly endorsed the American system of toleration. But you know, truly, the Catholic Church has a global, a global view, and it's, it's, it's a megalomaniac way of looking at the world. Pope Benedict, in his encyclical from 2009, said this, To manage the global economy, to revive economies hit by the crisis, there's an urgent need of a true world political authority. It would, be, it would need to be universally recognized and to be vested with the effective power. The effective power? What kind of power are we talking about here? The economy needs ethics in order to function correctly. Remember that no man may buy or sell? This is going after the economic side. Um, this is from Reuters, October 24, 2011. The Vatican called on Monday for sweeping reforms of the world economy and the creation of an ethical global authority to regulate financial markets. And it goes on and on. It wants to have, it needs to be worldwide scope with universal jurisdiction. And it says this, of course, this transformation will be made at the cost of a gradual balanced transfer of a part of each nation's powers to a world authority. Listen to what the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to the Vatican said. This is Thomas Malady from 1989 to 1993. He was the ambassador. He says this, I believe that the United States is the world's only superpower and the Holy See is the only worldwide moral political sovereignty have significant roles to play in the future. Their actions will impact the lives of people in all parts of the globe. When you look at it, there's only two powers on earth that can do this the United States, and the papacy. How many of you remember Tony Palmer? <clears throat> the protest has ended. That was what he said gleefully over and over again. When he's talking about the protest, he's talking about the Protestants. Where do we get our name from, Protestant? From protest. And what were we protesting? What did they say? They said, hey, we can have a peace. You Protestants, you can be Protestant and just be fine. Just, and we'll be Catholics over here. But you can't proselytize anywhere. And the Catholics said, I mean, excuse me, the Protestants said, no. 
we protest that, we will proselytize everywhere. And for that, the battle was on. And we've been Protestants ever since. Pope John Paul II, in 1991, on his tour in Poland, said um, he denounced the separation of church and state, according to Time magazine. Now, Pat Robertson's got a, a political action committee or a think tank. I'm not quite sure which this is. But anyway, this is a, a quote in Time magazine um, from the executive director. He says this, The wall of separation between church and state that was erected by secular humanists, what? It's not secular humanists. And other enemies of religious freedom, enemies of religious freedom, who's he calling an enemy? Has to come down. That wall is more of a threat to society than the Berlin Wall ever was. Those opposing our views are the new fascists. The Protestants are joining right into this. Running out of time here, folks. I could go on and on and on. Um, in 2014, um, there was a group of uh, Protestant uh, ministers that went and had meetings with Pope Francis. Um, quoting here, Joel Olstein. Um, I love the fact that he's made the church more inclusive. He said, not trying to make it smaller, but trying to make it larger, to take everybody in. So that just resonates with me. Joel Olstein there. Um, November 17, uh, 2014, the Vatican hosted an interfaith conference on marriage and the family. He had leaders from 23 countries, 14 religions, including Christian, Jewish, Mormon, Islamic, Buddhist, and Hindu religions. Look, this is just like the old Roman system. As long as you worship every god, then the gods will be pleased. The Pope is the ultimate ecumenical leader. Um, this is what Rick Warren had to say about this. He went to this, and he said, As long as Catholics and Protestants love Jesus, we're all on the same team. And then he went on to say, When the Pope invites you to go, you go. Ellen White had this to say, Through the true great errors, the immortality of the soul, and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. While the former lays the foundation of spiritualism, <clears throat> the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. The Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf to grasp the hands of spiritualism. When they reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power, and under the influence of this threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience. When she wrote this, I mean, we hadn't had a Catholic on the Supreme Court. We hadn't had a Catholic president. She had lived through the Civil War. She would seen what had gone on there. I mean, none of this would make sense. To write this, you'd have to be nuts. And yet we're seeing it fulfilled in our day. So what's the answer? What? Jesus. Amen. Let me read you something, and then I want to propose an answer. Amen, brother. December 1819, Jefferson wrote to Adams. They're both former presidents at this point, right? And he's wondering, Jefferson's asking Adams if virtue once lost to a nation could ever be restored. 
And Adams replied asking this question, have you ever found in history one single example of a nation thoroughly corrupted that was afterwards restored to virtue? And without virtue, there can be no political liberty. Then Adams asked this question, will you tell me how to prevent riches from becoming the effects of, temper from becoming the effects of temperance and in industry? In other words, we're a temperate industrial nation, we're gonna be rich. He says, how will you tell me, will you tell me how to prevent riches from producing luxury? Will you tell me how to prevent luxury from producing effeminacy, intoxication, extravagance, vice, and folly? When you answer me these questions, I hope I may venture to answer yours. Yet all these ought not to discourage us from the exertion, for I believe no effort in favor of virtue is lost, and all good men ought to struggle both for their counsel and example. Adams didn't recommend a course of action to foster virtue because that's only religion. Adams later said the Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other, and the responsibility for virtuous character must rest with the people. So what's the solution? My, my, you've got the LGBT issues coming on, and I didn't even mention Islam. This is coming on too. We've lost so much of our virtue just in the average member of society. We see the culture going down the tubes. But I can tell you there is no way we know from our experience that government cannot create virtue. Government religion doesn't have any place in government. And the second you put Christianity into religion, I mean into the state, you take... you. you <laughs> you take Christianity out of the state. It's definitionally not possible. And so I would propose this. For every problem you see, you can't solve it with government. You need Jesus. Amen? Amen. If, if we would convert homosexuals, if we would convert Islam, these problems would go away. It's our job as the churches. We have to get out there and do that, but we can't do it with the state. We can't ask the government to help us. We're just going to create a disaster. Every principle of the Constitution will be repudiated. And the sad thing is today we're starting to see that happen. When an executive rules by executive order instead of through the legislative process, we're seeing that happen. When you see um, agencies like the NSA and other agencies spying on its citizens, you're really doing away with the Bill of Rights and we're starting to see that happen. I wanna take you back to another time. I want to close with this thought and with this story. I want to take you back to May 15, 1527. This is at the very beginning of the Radical Reformation, and there's a Michael Sattler. He was an Anabaptist. He had been out baptizing people, and he got arrested by the Roman Catholic Inquisition in Rotenburg, Austria. It was not just him. It was him and 14 other defendants. They'd all been arrested. The main charges that were brought against them was this. They said that communion was an ordinance and not a sacrament, to which Michael Sattler replied, 
I am not aware that we've acted contrary to the gospel and the word of God. I appeal to the word of Christ. They said that he believed in believer's baptism, and his only response was affirmed. They said that he despised Mary, the mother of God, and that he condemned the saints. His response that he never reviled Mary or the saints, Mary or the saints, most esteemed of all women, but not a mediator. We are the living saints, he said. Those who die in the faith, we consider blessed. They said he married, because he was, he was a priest and he shouldn't have married, right? And he cited the gross immorality of the monks and that marriage had been ordained by God. They accused him of sympathizing with the Turks. And he had this to say. He said that he prays that God would deliver us from the Turks. And he said, the Turk is a true Turk and knows nothing of the Christian faith and is a Turk according to the flesh. But you, wishing to be a Christian and making your boast of Christ, persecute the pious witness of Christ and are Turks according to the Spirit. He went on to express hope that the judges would repent and receive instruction. And he requested to discuss the scripture with the judges, to which the judges laughed. Someone said this to him, Oh, you infamous, desperate villain and monk. You would have us engage you in a discussion. The executioner will dispute with you, we think for certainty. Sattler's reply was, let the will of God be done. People from the crowd shouted out, when I see you get away, I'll believe you. Why not stay Lord of the monastery? And he replied, I was Lord according to the flesh, but it is better thus. Two days later, he was executed. He was taken to the marketplace. They cut a piece out of his tongue. They tore flesh out of his body with hot tongues. Sattler prayed for his persecutors. They bound him and pushed him into the fire. He said, Almighty, eternal God, thou art the way and the truth. Because I have not shown to be in error, I will with thy help to this day testify to the truth and seal it with my blood. He raised his hands in victory as the ropes were burned. And he said, Father, I commend my spirit into thy hands. The three others were, three others were executed next. Eight days later, they drowned his wife. There was a Lutheran pastor, and a peer of his said this, Sattler's character lies clearly before us. He was not a highly educated divine and not an intellectual, but his entire life was noble and pure, true and unadulterated. You know, Sattler wasn't martyred because he believed in believer's baptism. He wasn't martyred for any of those things he believed in. He was martyred because he baptized people. It wasn't just because he believed in the baptism. He did it. And what did that baptism signify? It signified that you had entered into the true church of God. You were no longer in some state church that you were automatically a member of just by virtue of your birth. And that's why the state church couldn't tolerate believers' baptism. But think about where we're headed, Sunday versus Saturday. Isn't it the same issue? It's the identical issue. We keep Saturday 
because God asked us to, and we're his people. Sunday is the day of the state. And it's not enough just to believe that Saturday is the seventh day and the Sabbath. You have to keep it. And I think if you kept it maybe to yourself privately, the state might still leave you alone. But if you preach it, and if you preach the three angels' message, you will be doing just like Sattler. You'll be out baptizing. And so I challenge each one of you, religious liberty is fragile. We have had thousands of years of earth history and less than 200 years of true religious liberty in this country. Now, there's been bright spots here and there, and it would have been great to live in Rhode Island in 1630, right? This is a fragile state we're in. And we're called. We're called to spread the gospel and to spread the three angels' message. And we need to be like Sattler. I challenge you. Know the times that we're in. Take the knowledge that you've learned here. Learn as much as you possibly can. Educate your friends. Educate the politicians. But more than anything else, spread Jesus. It's really the only solution. This will come to an end. We know it will. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this place and this time when we can come together. We thank you for America and for the religious liberty that she offers us here today. Lord, we don't know why we were so blessed to live in this time, but Lord, we thank you. And I pray that each one of us will recognize the value of the religious liberty that we have. And Lord, may we seize the time. May we make good use of the time to do thy will, to get your work done. Lord, I pray for each one of us. Uh, there may be, and I believe there will be, very, very rough times for us to go through um, in our own lifetimes. I pray that we will be so grounded in the faith that we will be like the martyrs of old, Lord, and that we will not reject you, but that we will suffer your suffering and participate in your victory. Lord, please help us to be a good witness to others. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.